Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John Cale's career in music stretches back, at this point, more than 50 years. He grew up a promising viola player in Wales. He flew west to New York to study classical music. Instead, he fell in with an artsier crowd. John Cage, Lamont Young, Andy Warhol, and eventually Lou Reed. With Reed, he formed the Velvet Underground, one of the most influential acts in the history of rock music. You can hear his viola on the classic track, Venus in Furs. Although his time with the band was short, four years, two albums, John Cale was just getting started. He became a producer, responsible for shaping the debut albums of The Stooges, Jonathan Richman, Patti Smith, and Squeeze. He also worked as a composer, scoring the films Basquiat and American Psycho. It's the kind of resume that guarantees you a place in the rock and roll history book. But even that is just one side of Cale's work. He's also an accomplished trailblazing solo musician. He's recorded nearly 20 albums on his own. He's worked in genres like folk, metal, classical, and industrial, and pretty much everything in between. He's collaborated with Lou Reed, Terry Riley, and Brian Eno. into his 80s, he is still releasing new music, still pushing boundaries. Earlier this year, he released his 17th record, Mercy. When I talked to John Cale in 2016, he'd just re-released a live album from his discography, Fragments of a Rainy Season. Here's one of his classics from that night, Paris 1919. She makes me so unsure of myself Standing there and Sense. Just a 
John Kell, welcome to Bullseye. It's Thank you, man. you on the show. Thank you. Um, how do you feel about revisiting your old work? And especially since this re-release is a collection of re-recorded versions of songs, how do you feel about revisiting or revisiting? Oh, they're, they're, they're important. They have their own kind of view in the world. This record was done, was planned for a small tour of France. And we did it with, we took our, piano, our own piano with us. We got a Steinway piano. We loaded in and out every day, and, and the pride of French aerospace, there was a little robot that lifted it up to the stage and lifted and rolled it out to the truck. Wait, did and, you travel with the robot? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was, yeah. I'd put that, if you ever do that again, I'd put the robot on the bill. Yeah. John Kale and his piano robot. That's right. I'm piano robot out first. <laughs> the opening act. Is, um, yeah. I, I, hate, I hate to tell you, John, yeah. the robot's closing. Yes. You're opening for the robot. jeez. Oh, <laughs> I knew they'd catch up to me one day. Um, yeah, so we, we, we drove around France and Germany, uh, uh, and we're trying to be organized about it and do it, you know, the same set as every night so that we knew where everything was on the tape and all that. But really the best results came from mixing it up. My approach to it anyway is that if I can't figure out a better way of doing it that, and, and imbuing it with some new life, and another point of view, maybe, or how sarcastic can I sing this song? Which of, which of these songs on this record, which was recorded in 1992 and comprised mostly of material that you had recorded previously, which of them do you feel the most differently about now? Like, what is most it differently that, about? Yeah, what is it that when you sing it in, in a concert, you want it you want it to be sarcastic? For example, no, all of them. I mean, you can't. I can't go to a concert and do something the way that it was done before. So every time, I have to bring something, and it tells me because I know that these songs can live under different aegis. You know, it's like. This is a different person singing this song than it was four months ago. And in the case of the tour, it's from the night before. And it really makes things interesting because you've got, you've got to reinterpret the song. And, you know, when you're doing Harper Hotel anyway, I mean, Harper Hotel is a, is a reinterpretation to begin with. But the way it's done brings attention to the lyrics, that bombastic sort of heavy metal arrangement. I, I have actually a clip of you performing... Heartbreak Hotel in, I think, 19, 1980. You recorded in the mid-'70s. Um, but this is you performing it on Spanish TV. Oh, yeah. In 1980. Let's take a listen. It's, I mean, it sounds amazing. You're, yeah. you're like exactly the right age to have been hit by the rock and roll revolution in the mid to late 1950s. Yeah. Um, what's, the first, what's the first pop records that you remember? The Rock and Roll Clock. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, when's that? 56? Yeah. But I, yeah, I remember the film. Rock around the clock, coming around the local cinema, and I was up on the stage dancing. It was like all sorts of troublemaking. It was great. It was 
it was a, a jumble for me because that was one half that got me really excited, and the other half was then um, improvising my way through a piece for the for for a radio broadcast, and suddenly deciding, yeah, I think I want to be a composer. And everywhere I turn is, oh, so you want to be a composer, do you? And they'd find all sorts of, how are you going to make a living doing that? We've got more from my conversation with John Cale still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John Cale, the composer, producer, and performer. I want to play a song called The Ostrich. This is a kind of a version of a dance craze record from the, I think it's 1964. Yeah, yeah it would be. Yeah. Um, Pretty quick records. But uh, it's it's a real weird uh, take on a record from 1964. Uh, let's take a listen to it and we'll talk a little bit about what it meant. feel like I can imagine like a record executive going like, well, one-eyed to form out pop, pop, flying purple people eater worked. Well, let's, let's, let's cut it and see how it goes. <laughs> hey, where, where, how did, how do you, how did this song play into your career? Well, that's, it's how I first ran into Lou. This Lou, is uh, Lou Reed for yeah. folks taking notes at home. And they were the, uh, Record company was putting out records in the style of, like, so they put a style in the style of Beach Boys, whatever was popular at the time, and they wanted the British sound. So they made a whole bunch of songs on the, the Brit sound. And that's when I met Lou, who they spotted Tony and I at a party, and they said, Hey, look, you look commercial, you know, that, you know, you, we've got this record, The Ostrich, <laughs> and we really love you to come. And, and we went, our eyes popped out, and how, I said, How did you, yeah. how did, in what way did you, in what way did you look like you could sell records? <laughs> we had long hair. I mean, every, that was the beginning of the, the whole era. And um, we lived on the Lower East Side, and, uh, you know, the kids around there were going nuts. I mean, they, they said, Hey, you the Beatles. They throw stones too, just to get your attention. <laughs> and, um, and, Lou, and make, Lou Reed had, had written that the ostrich song as like a songwriter for hire. Right? Yes, yes, yes. He did all of that, but he 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 pulled me aside at the studio and said, "Listen," he said, um, "They're not really interested in me." He said because I have all these other songs, and they won't let me record them. I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, there's a song called Heroin. It's you know," and it was like red to a bull. I just said, "What do you mean they won't let you record them?" We'll go somewhere else and record it. Come on. Was there something that you wanted out of starting that band? Like, did you, were you thinking? Yeah, well, I want to break the rules. I wanted to be successful to break the rules. And so did Lou. I mean, uh, he didn't know quite exactly what the hell was going on. He was just going on about how, I can't believe a guy from Wales came down here. And uh, If you listen to the box set, you'll see the progression from... Venus in first sounding kind of folky, and then us doing it with the band with the with the drone and everything else and 
it matched his lyrics. Do you know what I mean? It, it really, so there was one side of Lou that was the happy-go-lucky rocker, and then there was the other side that was the poet with serious thinking. How did you define success at the time? Did that mean that you were a professional musician? Did it mean you were a rock star? Did it mean that you made the greatest albums ever? Or what, like, like, what did a, you want? God, I have no idea how I define it. I just said, we got to get out of here. That was it. And we just keep working all the time. It took us a year to get to, to the Banana Album. Every weekend, Lou would come into the city and do that. It was a good lesson. And then Andy popped up. And from there on, it was... Hold on to your britches. What was exciting to you about the music that you were making in that in that first year? Like when you were working on the weekends, what made you think it was something that was worth doing? Well, it took a while. I brought the viola into it. I also learned bass. I didn't know really until we hit Venus in first with that kind of tapestry of noise that was. And Lou and I were constantly talking about about literature and about Phil Spector and about Bob Dylan and where do we fit into all of this until Venus in First, Black Angels, that song, and All Tomorrow's Parties. Then you have something that's totally different. And in the background was this thing that we knew was standing as a visitor. You can't get a gig unless you play top 10 songs. And I thought, oh, well, what we're going to do is we're going to write some songs and nobody will be able to figure out how we did that. It sounds like part of part of what you really wanted was, was to kind of solve the puzzle, which is how do you cheat? How do you do something new and different and whatever that like satisfies your desire to be doing something and also get the thing which is like, this is working like for audiences, like I'm making a living or this is like, this is a rock and roll record. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was, but that time you'd gone through Andy though. So yeah, we worked hard at being different, but what was important was that it allowed each of us to have our own particular way of doing things. The ostrich was a detuned guitar. It was like all on B, all the strings are tuned to B. So there was a certain amount of experimentation still going on, but really all we had was like getting together, getting high, and really playing for a long time, improvising, and seeing what happened, because things invariably happened with Lou. I mean, he'd come up with some lyrics or whatever. I want to play a little bit of uh, Venus and Furs uh, from The Velvet Underground uh, from 1966, and uh, you'll hear my guest, John Cale. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flash girl child in the dark Comes in bells, your servant don't forsake him Strive dear mistress and cure his heart Severin, oh wait. 
Did Andy Warhol just come to one of your gigs? Yeah, he came with the entourage, with uh, Gerard and Billy and people from the factory. Did you know, was it like a... Was it like waiting for Guffman, like backstage, like Andy Warhol's coming tonight? Andy Warhol's coming tonight. There was no backstage. It was just <laughs> um, suddenly these people showed up, and we were arguing with the owner. What were you arguing with the owner about? A typical, you know, it's like can't play that song. Don't play that song again. So you play that song again, you're fired. And uh, but there, there's these sondages that came in. All of a sudden, Gerard was dancing to Venus in Furs with a whip. And, you know, there was a scene, you know. And I mean, Andy opened up all sorts of doors for us. He understood it. And in the end, he said, look, he said, I can I can get you booked in museums all over the world, you know, for the rest of your careers. He said, but I don't think you're, that's the place you should be. You know, you have an audience out there, you've got to go and play. How did you feel about that? Yeah, I understand that. But I don't understand still why Lou fired him without saying anything to anybody. He just, and we were still playing together. And I, I sort of, I was waiting for an explanation. It never came. I thought it was terrible. By that time, the thing that really drove the band was Lou and I and how we really wanted to get this done and that done. And we had an accomplice in Andy who really helped us. And then there was a discussion about the direction of the band that pretty much put the, put the sock in it. Was it like a literal discussion about the direction of the band? Like a, let's all sit together in a living room and decide whether this is a... Yeah, kind of. Not in a living room, but some of it was explained to us by says, you know, Lou wants to do this kind of song. He thinks we should be doing more pretty songs. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I said, but you know, you're throwing away everything that we've just, just established here. Said, that's going backwards. We've done, achieved something here and you're like ready to abandon it. All of this started eating away at everybody, but having ate away at me anyway that he had fired Andy. It sounds like a big thing. One of the big things that you wanted was this thing that had been motivating you through working with Lamont Young, through joining this band, through doing whatever, which was to not do anything that felt like a step backwards, to always be doing something that felt like a new thing. Totally. Yeah. Then shortly after that, Sterling showed up and and said, I just saw Lou. He said, we got a gig on in Cleveland. I said, oh, great. I said, I said yeah, but he said, if Kale goes, I don't go. So make up your mind, you want to go with Kale in the band or you want to go with me? And that was it. So I suddenly thought, well, I better get going on, on the production side of things. We have so much more to get into. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The following pro wrestling contest is scheduled for one fall. Making their way to the ring from the Tights and Fights podcast are the baddest trio of audio, the hair to beware, Danielle Radford. It really is great hair. The Brit with a permit to hit, Lindsay Kell. The queen is dead. Long live the queen. And the fast-talking, fist-clocking Hal Upland. See, I can wrestle and be an announcer. Get ready for tights and fights. Listen every Saturday or face the pain. Find us on Maximum Fun. No ring the bell. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is John Kale. He was a founding member of the Velvet Underground, 
He produced records for Patti Smith, The Stooges, and Jonathan Richman. He also has made his own acclaimed work. Earlier this year, he released his 17th solo album, Mercy. It features contributions from Animal Collective, Dev Hines, and Tony Allen. Here's another song off the album. This features Wise Blood. It's called Story of Blood. Music production, John, was it more a practical thing, like a, almost like picking up a trade, like because you had those skills, it was a thing that was there for you. It had some of that, yeah. But to me, it was it was really survival at the time, and I devoted all this other time and emotion into the VU, and I didn't want to get buried under an avalanche of negativity. And as it happened, Danny Fields was who I knew in the factory called up and said that Jack wanted me, Jack Osman wanted me to go to Detroit and hear a band. I said, great, and went, and the rest is known. We just had Danny Fields on the show uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, he's fun. He is really fun. He is yeah. a really fun guy. You can see how he managed the things he did because he's just such a charmer. And he talked a little bit about the first time that he went to see MC5 and saw the Stooges opening for them. I think that was my first time, too, with the MC5. It was a Nuremberg rally, the MC5, <laughs> up against the wall. And what was it about the Stooges that you liked oh, relative to the sort of brutality of MC5? It's very easy to enjoy them. I mean, there were just three of the guys up there. And they were slamming it. And there was this pixie who was like the lead singer who was doing all sorts of tricks up there on stage. And my first question was, how the hell are I putting all this on the record? But it didn't take long. I think we had like 10 days, five to record, five to mix, maybe. There's something about the Stooges and especially Iggy Pop, which is like as intense as their music is. I mean, it's like, it certainly was at least as intense as any rock music that had come before it. There's also always this element of uh, fun. Like, I don't want to Absolutely. say like, I don't want to say like goofiness, but like there's a- Almost. But something like that. Like there's, there's, a, there's an element of like, well, aren't we all getting over together? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. That thing of climbing up on a table and picking up a table and threatening the audience with a table and then ending up hugging the table. And, you know, all those moments are magical. I want to play uh, one more song that you produced. This is uh, Patti Smith. You produced her album Forces from 1975. This is Gloria.
sort of signed up to produce her record. She was really, truly a poet performing with a band. Why did you sign up to be the producer, and what did you think she and that band could be? Well, what made sense at the time was kind of a business decision. Not for Patty. For Patty, it was just like visceral. It was really, I, I, I knew the poetry center and what she, the way she worked. I got this feeling that this band was really integrated. I mean, they were all on the same page. And Patty was like looking after everybody, making sure everybody was fine. And everybody was really devoted to Patty. It was like a perfect situation. And as it turned out, I moved back to New York and, uh, what I hadn't done, I'd done something in Europe. I'd had a band with Spedding, and, and we did some, made some inroads. No inroads in, in states. So I thought, well, maybe now's the time to do it. And I went back, and, I, and the opening was with Patty. I went on the road with Patty, and that was a lot of fun. I want to play one more song from uh, your album, Frag Fragments of a Rainy Season, which has just been re-released. My guest is John Cale. Um, it's your cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which is a song that you found a lot of new in that um, in some ways helped give it some new life, um, or at least an, a, a second alternate life. Um, let's take a listen. She tied you to a kitchen chair She broke your throne She cut your hair And from your lips She drew the hallelujah 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 Your version of that song seems like a reflection of this interest you have to always find something new, even if it's in something old. Does that seem true to you? Yeah, I thought it was really gorgeous the first time I heard it with the full band and the girls. And, and but then I, 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 I asked for the lyrics and Leonard sent them to me, and they were really, they were, I couldn't see myself singing some of them. They were, they really referred to Judaism and his relationship to God and all. So I I chose the cheeky verses, the fun ones. You have this thing in in Leonard songs where he crosses crosses the line between mysticism and reality. And he walks back and forth really casually between all two of them, and um, and it's it's special. Well, John Kell, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to come in and talk to me. It was really nice to meet you. Pleasure. John Kale recorded in 2016. His latest album, Mercy, is available to buy or stream now. I'm going to go out on another song from his solo discography. This one is a favorite of our senior producer, Kevin Ferguson. I Keep a Close Watch. Never win and never lose. Nothing lost and nothing gained. It's 
still things I'm quite the same between you and me. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. At my producer, Kevin Ferguson's house, which I can see through an electro-conferencing window, a baby is waving to me, being made to wave to me by Kevin. She's not able to wave on purpose yet. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers, Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It is called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on social media. You can find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, We share our interviews in those places. We hope that you will share them on from there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.